But today we're not going to talk about Ludafisk or Eel Pout too much. We're just going to talk about something probably even more pleasant, Angels and Demons, which may be more pleasant than Ludafisk. So these are, we are talking about this one just because I don't remember. Somebody mentioned it here that it might be an interesting thing to talk about. And it's one of those things that uh, if you don't have an overt Bible study on it, you just kind of have a lot of curious curiosity about it. And there's definitely a lot of ideas floating out there about both angels and demons, and they run the gamut from uh, fairly innocuous to probably out on the hinterlands of strange. And it's good to know, what does the Bible itself actually say about angels and demons? Because again, there are some popular beliefs out there that are simply not only not true, but actually uh, downright contrary to some very important teachings of Scripture. I'll just mention one off the bat. There's a very popular way people talk about people becoming angels when they die. Just simply not true in even rem the most remote sense of the word. Actually against what the scriptures teach about what happens to us after we die. And about what the nature and purpose of angels are. People don't get their angel wings. No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid they do not. So... Let's, we'll, we'll start by going a little systematically at this by talking about what the scriptures directly say about angels in a broad sense. And then uh, as we work through this, um, we'll probably get to uh, questions that you guys have about thoughts they might have. Do we have guardian angels? What happened? That kind of stuff about those things. But first of all, let's talk about the very basic question. What do we even mean when we say uh, an angel. What is an angel? For that matter, what's a demon? Uh, the word angel, by the way, in scripture does not always refer to what we mean by angels. Angel, literally in both Greek and Hebrew, it comes from the Greek word angelos, but there's a Hebrew word for it as well, but both of them mean the same thing, which is simply messenger. It doesn't refer to necessarily a specific class of beings with wings and halos and all of that good stuff. Different things, like I said, well, we'll look at this. Sometimes it refers to people who are messengers of God in some specific sense. Pastors, priests, prophets, where it's very directly calling them angels in the very direct sense of this is a messenger of God's word. Uh, we'll just read, we won't go through all of these scripture verses. This is just a hand, a hodgepodge of references to illustrate the point. But if somebody does happen to have Malachi 2.7, why don't you read it for us? For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. All right, notice the, uh, the way your English Bible translates this. By the way, it's talking very obviously about a priest and what a priest does, and how he's supposed to talk. Galen read the word messenger. You know what the word messenger there is in the language of Hebrew? The same exact word for angel, because that is literally what the word angel means. If you go to the book of Revelation, you know all of those letters to the seven churches that John wrote. Um, do you happen to remember how they're addressed? If you want, just go to Revelation 2.1. It's to the, angel. to the angel of the church of whatever. So, and some people have read this and they thought, what, does every congregation have its own little particular angel? Well, why would John be writing a letter to an angel, first of all? That'd be odd, to say the least. It's almost certainly the case that angel in this sense is a reference to the pastor or the elder of that congregation. 
So there, there again, the word angel isn't talking about some heavenly being, but about just a person who God has appointed to be a messenger of his word. It's even a way of referring to the Son of God uh, very consistently in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of places where this happens, by the way. Um, but one of the most famous is Exodus 3, verse 2. We'll look at that just because it's very good to illustrate the point here. The angel, in this sense, even is a way that the Old Testament talks about the pre-incarnate Son of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, and it did not burn up. All right, so what appeared to Moses in that flaming bush? An angel of the Lord. But then, who does it refer to just a little further down? Read verses 3 and 4 for me now. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now who is in the bush? <laughs> God. God. Did the angel start the fire and then leave and then God decided to pop up and say, I guess I'll take this one myself. Angel, thanks, go home. I got this. No, almost certainly the angel of the Lord here, messenger of the Lord, is the Old Testament way of also talking about what John calls the word of God, which was in the beginning with God and was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is to say, the Old Testament frequently, not always, but frequently when it references the angel of the Lord, it very often speaks about them interchangeably. Here's the angel of the Lord who appears to them, and then it's always the Lord spoke or the Lord left. As though it's the same exact person we're talking about. So very often we look at that and we say that's probably a reference to the, uh, the Son of God, the word, what the New Testament, instead of calling the angel of the Lord, calls the word of the Lord. Same basic thing. By the way, the, mess the New Testament does also occasionally call Jesus the messenger of the Lord. Just to get the point across, sometimes angel doesn't refer to either people or to heavenly beings, but to God himself. Now, of course, there are frequently times where it very clearly refers to a specific kind of heavenly being. The sort that we usually mean when we use the word angel. We could go to, a, why not just go to Luke 1.11? We don't even necessarily need to go there. This is the very beginning of the announcement of Jesus' birth. And who announces Jesus' birth to Zechariah? Or, I mean, John's birth to Zechariah? An angel! We even know that angel's name, don't we? Do you remember? Gabriel. Clearly, this is not God. This is not Jesus announcing his own birth to Mary when the, the same angel appears to Mary just a little later in the book of Luke chapter 1. This is clearly a whole different kind of heavenly being. And that's the one that we're really going to focus on, of course, in our message. But it's just to say, whenever you come across the word angel as you're reading your, uh, your Bible, or for that matter, the word messenger, recognize that it doesn't necessarily refer to what comes to your imagination when people talk about angels, okay? By the same token, now, very differently, I should say, demons always, almost, virtually always mean a certain class of spiritual being. It almost never refers to a person, certainly, obviously, never to God, but it's a much more specific kind of mention in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it doesn't have um, some broader meaning like messenger or other. 
um, in every case it's used, it's used of a spirit, specifically an evil spirit. And of course, the same with the devil, Satan. That word, by the way, Satan, means technically accuser or adversary. But in every case when devil or Satan is meant, uh, well, I actually shouldn't say that. There are certain times where even the word Satan is used to refer to human beings and not in an evil sense. That is to say, as simply a legal point where their formal job is like prosecuting attorney. He's the Satan in this particular trial. It even appears in uh, the book of Zechariah. I can't remember the verse off my head. I forgot to write it down here. But I do believe we're going to come across it again. But anyway, it's where this uh, priest, Jonah, is being accused of something, and the person accusing him is called, referred to as Satan in the Old Testament. Not because that person is evil, but because the word technically means accuser or adversary. And so in that sense, Satan has the broader sense of somebody who is your adversary in a legal setting. They're bringing charges against you. And that's why uh, we call the devil, which is always a uh, bad word, usually means deceiver and so on and so forth, and, oh, and usually refers to the devil, Satan. Because as we'll see, one of his primary functions is to accuse you, both to yourself and before God, to try to prove that you're guilty. Okay? Satan and devil have two different... Right. Devil means something different than Satan. Uh, it comes from the word diabolus, which usually is meaning deceiver, something like that sort. But uh, especially in the New Testament, it almost, I mean, diabolus almost always refers to the devil, per se, in the strict sense of the arch enemy of God. Make sense? Any questions about any of that? Um, always kind of neat to know those kinds of words. But now that we know uh, what these words can refer to, Let's talk about what we're talking about when we're talking about these heavenly beings, or for that matter, these uh, evil spirits. Angels and demons, regardless of what we're talking about here, when we're ta or whenever we're talking about these spiritual beings, there's a few things we need to bear in mind about what they are, what kinds of beings they are. One of the first things that's worth saying about them is they are spirits. When we say spirits, what we very specifically are trying to say is they're not made up of physical things. They don't have bodies. They're not made up of either matter or energy. They are on a whole nother plane of existence, you might say. They just exist differently than everything else we can hear, touch, taste, smell, or see. Which is why in the Nicene Creed we talk about these things as invisible creation of God. We don't mean invisible in the sense that if I, I, I just can't see it for whatever reason, the same way that air is invisible, because air in principle is made up of matter, right? It takes up space. Angels and demons do not in that specific sense. Um, and by the way, if you wanted verses about this, we could go to Hebrews 1.14, for instance. Are not all angels ministering spirits serve those who will inherit salvation. Right. There are What are they? They are spirits. That is to say, they are not um, of this world in the same way that you or I or pretty much any other thing that we could measure with physics could ever get a hold of. By the way, that uh, is also worth an interesting uh, aside here. 
You've probably heard some people say, well, there's no proof of angels or demons. I can't, uh, I can't measure them. Science can't, has no evidence for them. Therefore, they don't exist. What does that assume? It assumes that everything that exists can be measured by scientific methods. That, in fact, everything that exists must be made of either matter or energy. But what if that's not even true? Of course, if you're measuring with matter and energy and can only measure those things, you're not going to be able to measure the things that are not made of matter or energy. Um, it's a huge blind spot in, our, in a lot of people's thinking. Some things in this universe that God has made, some things, and I should say better put, his creation are not of the stuff that physics can even start to talk about. You might say, well, wait, people say they've seen angels. How can that be? We'll get to that in a little bit. But just bear in mind, spirits. I think we all have a good, pretty good idea that uh, in our heads, angels and demons, whatever we want to say about what they are, they are definitely extremely powerful things. Just for instance, somebody want to read 2 Kings 19.35 for us. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Okay, so, um, how many angels did this? Well, it says angel, which I see. It says singular, makes you get the idea that it might have been just one, and he killed 185,000 people in one night, and were people aware? Was this like an angel came down in a movie scene where he's got this flaming sword and he's fighting off hordes of people with his great power? Uh, no, he just comes and they kill, they die. He doesn't even need to exert physical effort. They just die at the angel's whim. And people don't discover it until they wake up, apparently from what seemed like a peaceful enough night to get a full night's sleep for the rest of those guys. So if you were a man, in, a man in that camp, you weren't probably in, uh, very lucky. No, you were not. <laughs> Bear in mind, forces were not exactly large back in those days. That was a stupendously huge number of troops. <laughs> stupendously. Which is to say, it's almost certain that there were very few people left alive after the fact, which is why they decided, okay, we're not going to fight this battle after all, we're going home. <laughs> but, point being made here... This is obviously extremely powerful of an entity here. Acts 12, 5 through 11, if somebody wants to read that one. 5 to 11? Yeah. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. When the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate, leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. All right, there again. What is the angel able to do? 
quite miraculously. Tie him out of prison without the guards yeah. noticing. Just makes the chains fall off of him, makes gates open up apparently by themselves, and the guards aren't even the slightly bit the wiser. This is obviously, however you want to cut it, a very powerful being you're dealing with. I thought we didn't see them. Can't see them? Well, we can't see them unless they choose to manifest themselves. And this is where we're going to go a little bit later, but we'll just point this out now. Angels, in principle, don't have bodies, physical forms. They're not composed of matter or energy, per se. But they're still able to interact with the world at God's behest. They're able to manifest in certain forms. And as we'll see later, we'll come back to this and reiterate it in more detail. They're able to manifest in whatever form they want, apparently. And that often is a form that uh, is, I suppose, appropriate for cultivating a sense of awe and wonder and majesty in the people they're appearing to. The whole wings, the uh, young boys dressed in dazzling white or young men dressed in dazzling white. But it also can be extremely humble. So as we'll see a little later, Hebrews says, some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. Or as Isaiah sees, Stupefyingly hard to imagine beings with six wings, tons of eyes, faces, and all kinds of weird things that you can't even wrap your head around and would have a hard time imagining. It looks almost something out of some Lovecraft horror novel. So they don't have these physical features, but they can choose to manifest and appear as though they have those physical features for whatever purpose they have, which again is an illustration of their huge power. They don't exist in the same way you and I do, with these very limited, very predictable forms and bodies that can move only in certain ways and interact with the world around us in certain ways, they are above and beyond. They transcend our physical universe and can break into it at times in ways they see fit and even change and manipulate and operate and and cause things to happen in this physical world that are sometimes fairly, uh, we can wrap our heads around, sometimes which just boggle the mind and the power. To make that point, let's go to Ephesians 6.12, by the way, to say that this isn't also only true of, de- of angels, it is also true of demons. This one is a little more uh, abstract, but it, I use this one to illustrate the point of power and um, strong ability. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. All right. Here, Paul, by especially the reference of spiritual forces of evil, he's almost certainly referencing the devil and his angels, which is referenced many other times throughout the scriptures. And the reason I chose this one rather than those specific things is what does Paul, what kinds of words does Paul use to describe these beings? Rulers, thrones, principalities, cosmic powers. Things that don't act in discrete, easily identifiable ways. Like that angel who clearly, even though we have no idea how, makes blocks drop off of things, gates open on their own. Or the angel in the Old Testament who makes people drop dead. Those are huge displays of power, obviously. But you can wrap their heads around it as it was a specific act that I can point to and say, that's what he did. Paul, when he's, this is the preface to the whole armor of God thing, refers to these, these uh, evil forces almost in terms of kingly kinds of power. 
where you don't where they move whole forces across vast areas of the landscape without any direct obvious interference of their own part, but just by pulling strings, manipulating things, moving forces in ways that the average common citizen can barely understand or comprehend on a much greater degree. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. These things move so many forces that we can barely even understand or experience and let alone point to in ways that are trying to seek our destruction. As we'll see uh, a little later, um, things like the movements of pestilence, plagues, um, moving whole nations and empires and not just specific leaders, but peoples to get gripped up by what you might call a spirit that moves them in very destructive directions. All of these kinds of things, scripture and Paul here in this very brief phrase, identifies as not just the providence of human evil, but especially the providence of cosmic powers up and behind and pushing and pulling at the strings of all of these human evils. It's kind of a crazy thing. And it also makes the point, where are they at, these, have these evils? Are they, can I point to a place and say, well, the devil is currently right over there whispering in Bill's ear, or there's clearly, obviously, the angel is over there by Kathy whispering in her ear. Well, maybe that's true, but it's not as though it's only in a specific place because it doesn't have a body. And it transcends these things and so can be, in a certain sense, present all over the place at once. Um, it's hard to wrap our heads around because we're so trained in thinking in very, uh, I suppose you might say, scientific ways these days. where We can't even think about things that aren't directly explainable in terms of physics, psychology, and so forth. That's not how it was for most of history. That's one of the, I guess you might say, perks of our rational worldviews. But it's also worth saying that however powerful and amazing these things are, they are never more powerful than God. In fact, they are always subordinate to him, and in a very real sense, they have their limits set by him. Um, for instance, read... Uh, Hebrews 1, 5 through 13 will be a good place to go here. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in, yeah. he also says in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now here the author of the Hebrews is just opening up the letter by making a very specific point. Jesus is even higher in dignity than an angel. After all, he makes point, he just goes through various scripture prophecies about Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled them and says, this is what God said to Jesus. He never said that to any angel. Therefore, Jesus is higher than an angel, equal unto the glory and dignity of God himself. 
Whereas, for instance, that one verse, just to highlight this point, that angels are subordinate to God. It says he makes his angels ministers, flames of fire, serving, servants. Minister here not meaning pastor, but minister meaning somebody who discharges a duty on behalf of a higher authority. And then the next line, line makes the comparison, but he gives the son an eternal throne. The angels are merely servants. Christ is the Lord. That's the point he's making, which also makes the point, therefore, angels are simply beneath God and serve at his behest. Um, as we'll come to talk about later, um, demons and the devil are fallen angels. They are angels who rebelled against their uh, place given to them by God and uh, therefore set themselves in opposition to God. But, it doesn't, but they still remain subordinate to lesser in authority, power, and dignity and wisdom than God. Make sense? By the way, it's also not worth saying this is a very good set of verses to go to if a Jehovah's Witness ever comes to your door, because uh, Jehovah's Witness have this uh, sense that Jesus is actually um, more like the Archangel Michael. In fact, they will say he is the Archangel Michael. It's just another name for Christ, that Jesus is not really God per se, he was a, a lesser create. He was a high, the highest and best creation of God, the archangel who came down and uh, did all of this. But Hebrews very explicitly says, "But to which angel did God ever do any of these things?" Anyway, point being, angels and demons, for that matter, are subordinate to God, and therefore it's also worth saying there are very there are actual limits to their power and to their knowledge, and for that matter, to their presence. Um, and it's worth saying some things about the limits of their knowledge. We won't necessarily go to all of these verses. But, uh, for instance, angels do not know when the end of the world will come. They are not all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. Uh, Matthew 24, 36 is that verse where Jesus says, of the, of the day and time of the end, not even the, none of the angels know, nor even the Son, but only the Father who is in heaven. By the same token, it says that uh, in 1 Peter 1.12 is one I do want you to turn to, because that one's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, they're all interesting, but this one is even more interesting than probably the uh, fact that they don't know that when the world will end. Somebody want to read that 1 Peter for us? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Right. By the way, he's talking about the, the revelations the prophets in the Old Testament received. That uh, it was revealed to them that they weren't having these revelations to serve themselves, but to serve the people who came later um, by helping them see Christ and especially the gospel which is the message of God coming into the flesh to bear our sins and die on the cross and open to us the way of everlasting life. And then he concludes that by saying, even angels long, that is, have an earnest desire to look into, to understand, to meditate on these things. As though the angels themselves don't fully grasp and have an, this perfect understanding of the depths of the grace and love of God. And that they themselves are learning to see it more and more fully 
as God's plan works out. So even angels don't have the full scoop on what God's plans and purposes are necessarily and don't understand the depths of God, either his grace, his compassion, or for that matter, his uh, judgment and wrath. Another more practical limit on the knowledge, 1 Kings 8.39. This one is a good one to bear in mind. In here from heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and act, deal with each, other, each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, you alone know the hearts of all men. So he's talking to God, and what does he assert about God? He alone knows the hearts of all men. Does if, that, if, if he's not just being hyperbolic there in his prayer saying, oh God, you're so majestic here. I'm just going to go over the top and gush about you. Things that aren't even necessarily true per se, but kind of make the point about how great you are. Let's assume he's not being hyperbolic. Let's say he's saying something accurate about God, that only God truly knows the hearts of every person. What does it mean angels do not know? If only God knows the hearts of people, do angels know the hearts of people? Stands to reason they do not. Uh, which, let's take this one step further. If only God knows the hearts of people, does the devil know the hearts of people? No. That is to say, the devil does not know ev with absolute certainty everything that goes on in your own heart, your own mind, your own, the depths of you. It's fair to say, he's probably the best psychologist who ever lived. <laughs> he can make very good educated guesses after thousands of years of dealing with human nature and uh, knowing what people are ought to do, that he has a pretty good accurate guess about what's going on in your heart and your mind. But does he know with absolute certainty your thoughts, what you will do in any given situation, and what will move you in any given situation. No, he doesn't know you perfectly. Only God knows you perfectly. Um, by the way, also a good humble thing to remember, how often are you certain you know what's going on in another person's heart? Fairly regularly, depending on the person. <laughs> I already know what you're thinking. <laughs> you might be right, because you've had a long experience, but... Uh, be humble. Know that only God actually knows what's going on in the hearts of anybody. Uh, you can only make good, solid, educated guesses. Same with the devil, by the way, which is kind of comforting when you think about it, because it means he can't just read your mind and anticipate every possible thought you're ever going to have and always, therefore, declare checkmate before the show even gets going. Um, as it turns out, only God knows how to declare checkmate, and he already knows how to declare checkmate against the devil and against everybody who opposes him. It's already a foregone conclusion for God, but not so for the devil or the angels, for that matter. Now, it's also uh, worth saying they have specific limits on their power, and those limits are given and set by God himself. Which for angels makes some pretty good sense. We probably don't even need to go to any verses to think, well, of course, if God created the angels, he can say how far they can go and no further. One of the things that's uh, a little harder for us to understand, but which makes sense when you think about it, this is also true of devil and demons. For instance, go to Job chapter 1, verse 12, the most famous instance of that. They can leave a message if it's important. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hand. But on the man himself did not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right. So Job, we all have a rough idea of the story of Job, right? Good, pious man, 
always tried to do his best, but out of a true, genuine faith in God, led him to do good works, as we, uh, we don't want to go contradict our last uh, set of Bible lessons. The devil comes to God, and uh, God says, well, what's you been up to, devil? And the devil says, oh, I've been, you know, keeping an eye on the earth, seeing what's going on there. And God says, well, have you, have you noticed my servant Job? What a good, faithful guy he is. And the devil says, well, he's only faithful because you're so darn good to him. I bet I can show you he's rotten to the core. Just give me a ch- shot at him, and I'll show you that he has no real faith in you, that it's just gratitude for your goodness. And God says, knock yourself out, devil. I'll let you go this far. Hurting his life, his, possession, his possessions and things are in your hand, but don't kill him. And therefore, the God allows the devil to work to a certain amount of destruction, but sets a very firm limit that even the devil cannot transgress and has to obey. That's kind of a crazy thought when you think about it, isn't it? Kind of justifies expanding our view of God when we sometimes think of him as a, uh, as a little too human, in the sense of limited to only the kinds of reasoning processes and actions that we would take, maybe on a higher level, but hard to think of him the way, say, Luther describes him, as the author of life and death and all in all, or as Lamentations very strongly puts it, does not good or bad come except that I, the Lord, decree it. And as Job himself says, or as the book of Job itself also says at the end of Job, does not both prosperity and calamity ultimately come from the hand of the Lord. Um, I'm in charge of everything. Even the devil who works against me, nevertheless, I set limits to, I work through to accomplish my purposes. Sobering thought when you really think about it. But for our purposes, we're just going to highlight God sets the limits of what angels and demons and the devil can or cannot do. Which, of course, raises all kinds of other questions that we're not going to dive into here about why does God let the devil do all of these things? Maybe we'll do that next Bible study. We'll go into the problem of evil. But uh, not what we're going to focus on right now. It's also worth saying that they are not omnipresent in the sense that God is present everywhere all the time and has all things, I suppose it's better to say, present to him. Sometimes when we say, do you remember back in uh, confirmation, your pastor teaching you all those omni-words? Do you remember what those omni-words were? Omnipotent. Omnipotent. Omnipresent. Omnipresence, yeah, there was another one, one that we're going to talk about here in a second. And of course, the other big one was omniscient. Omni meaning all, scient meaning knowledge, all-knowing. Omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful, so all-powerful. Omni meaning all, present meaning, pretty straightforwardly, present, all-present. You might say, why do we have to use omni words? Why can't we just say all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present? Theologians like to sound smart. That's the answer. Actually, that's not the only answer, but we'll just leave it stand there. Um, When we're saying God is omnipresent, we don't just mean that he's present everywhere in the sense that he's here, he's there across the world in Afghanistan, he's up in Russia, he's down in the hinterlands of, I don't know, name a barren country. Wherever you can go, as the Psalms say, you are there. If I hide myself in the depths, you're there. If I ascend to the heights, you're there. Nowhere I can go to flee from your presence. That's true. But it's also worth thinking about it in exactly the other way around. That God, who exists outside of space and outside of time as its creator and master, has all things in heaven and on earth, 
things in the past, things in the present, things in the future, present to him. That is to say, it's all laid out before him all the time. Um, hard to wrap your head around that because we exist in time and can't think outside of those terms very well. But it's to say, everything is present to him um, at his feet. Not so the devil and the angels. They do not have all things laid bare before them all the time. But they aren't bound by the rules of physics the way that we are. Otherwise, if, well, going back to the idea that there's spirit, first of all, let's say this. They clearly don't have bodies, right? If they had bodies, they would always have bodies. Whether they happen to be here, standing right next to you, standing behind you, trying to guard you, or whether they were somewhere else. The fact that you can't see them, touch them, taste them, the fact that they aren't specifically able to be identified as right there in that five-foot radius means, is one way of saying they don't have bodies. So they don't occupy space in our sense. But it's also true they can be present in a place in a focused way, as they desire to be so. Let's think about an obvious example. Demon possession. It's very obvious that in the case of demon possession, the way the scriptures describe it, where is that demon? You can point right to the, uh, the man, the, the crazy guy at the garrisons and the tombs there, who's naked and raving mad and says, my name is Legion for we are many. And then Jesus casts him out and into a herd of pigs. And you can say very definitively, in some sense, that demon is there localized in those pigs, right? But is the devil only in this room right now? Boy, the devil would have to be very quick to go for successively between um, some, the seven billion odd people there are inhabiting the world right now. The fact is, they aren't localized in the sense that they are only and always in one specific radius or place. It, we can't think of them in terms like that. While they can manifest and focus in a certain place, you might say, again, they transcend the universe in a very real sense, they're not confined to any specific place. Does that make sense? So the devil can be working on Sam's heart just as much as he's working on my heart 10 feet across the room. And for that matter, 10,000 miles away on the other side of the globe at the same time because he's not in a place specifically. <laughs> now it's also worth saying that they are nonetheless for all of this uh, spirituality and non-materiality, they are personal beings. What we mean when we say a personal being is we mean that they're, they have uh, what you might call rationality. They're able to act of their own will. They have things like a will. They are able to make plans and purposes and things. They are not impersonal forces like, for instance, the weather. The weather is an impersonal force. It's a force, it's active, but it has no thoughts, no self-direction, right? It just moves. This is, by the way, the same thing, very similar to what we mean when we say God, our God, excuse me, is a personal God. He has a very specific sense of what he wants to accomplish. He self-directs, he, uh, he interacts with people. By the way, not all religions have a personal God. Hinduism and Buddhism, Buddhism especially, does not have a personal God. It's got an impersonal sense of the divine. The divine doesn't interact with you. It doesn't care about you. It's not even aware of you. In fact, the whole hope of the Buddhist is to escape consciousness and get to be one with the impersonal divine force that you are, which is what they call nirvana. 
you become part of the divine where you lose all sense of time, self. There's no personality, there's no self-direction, there's no awareness. It just is and moves. Um, neither, God, neither the true God nor the angels and demons he has created act like that. And by the way, it's also important to say, when we're talking about these things in scripture, it's not that they're just personifications of these forces. Sadly, in modern theology, you probably have heard people say things like, well, there's no such thing as the devil. The devil just represents evil. He's the personification of evil. Have you ever heard something like that? That means, uh, that's a way of saying, evil isn't a personal force. It doesn't have intentions or designs or anything like that. It's not personal. We just, to help us understand it better, um, we personify it. We give them those traits to help it make sense in our own minds. But Evil is just something that happens, and it's the, the result of us doing things. There's no devil out there trying to make you do bad things or trying to destroy you because that's just not how evil works. That's a very, very popular idea in a lot of contemporary Christian, Christian quotes around it, thinking. Um, because why do you suppose? Well, we're a good scientific people now. We know there aren't such things as angels and bogeymen in your closets or devils trying to make you do things. There's no shoulder cartoons popping up on your shoulders. Therefore, we know that that was just something that's, uh, you know, somewhat undeveloped, not very smart people in the past who were nothing like us with our great refinement. That's just how they made sense of the world. They personified big forces like sickness, like death, like evil. That is not what the scripture teaches. For instance, just go to uh, Matthew 8, 28 through 34. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes. Garrison, or the Gardene. Yeah, I have to look at the word to say it. So we'll just give it your best shot and we'll call it good. It looks like Gadarenes to me. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now, there's, a, there's an account of a, a guy who's demon-possessed, or two guys, in fact, who are demon-possessed. Does that sound like whatever is going on there is really just a bunch of impersonal forces, non-conscious they don't have any personality. They don't have any uh, desires or anything like that. Is that what's going on in these two guys? Or does it sound like a person <laughs> is driving these guys and interacting with Jesus? Clearly, it sounds more like the second. Uh, and by the way, this is not just an isolated incident. Uh, if you've been going through with us in uh, our Sunday studies through Mark, you realize demon possessions were something Jesus dealt with frequently and often. And did Jesus go to them and say, Be gone, epilepsy. <laughs> I cast the epilepsy out, you stupid rubes, thinking this was a demon. 
No, Jesus actually talks back and forth frequently with the evil spirits. Jesus and the apostles all interact as though these are things to interact with. And as though they have motives, designs, and uh, destructive tendencies. That is to say, you cannot even make sense of most of what happens in the Gospels if you do not think that the demons and the angels, on the one hand, are real, and on the second hand, are personal forces, and not just impersonal ones. And by the way, it makes almost no sense what Jesus is dying if these are just personifications of things. When the demons uh, asked Jesus, says, Has, have, you, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Are they speaking of when Christ dies on the cross? Or when, you know... Right. Um, well, and we could... That's a fairly good long discussion we could have. There's, there's two possibilities. One of them is, again, when Jesus actually overcomes the, uh, the power of Satan to accuse and condemn on the cross. More likely, this is actually a reference to the end of time in the book of Revelation when it depicts Jesus decisively um, casting out the devil and his angels down into the lake of burning fire where they are tortured and tormented for all eternity. So it's probably that where he's referring to Jesus, this is not the end of days. Are you come to torment us even now? Um, so it's also worth knowing on that score, by the way, the dem demons and devils may not know everything, but they do know who God is. They also, strangely enough, know that he is much more powerful than them. And they even know that he is ultimately going to win. What kind of idiot picks that battle? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure you've met people who do that same exact thing. It may not end well, but darn it, it's good while it lasts. <laughs> Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that probably a little later in the Bible study, but that's a good point or a good question. All right, so that's a basic rundown of what we, we're referring to when we refer to angels and demons in the sense of heavenly beings. Spirits, that is things that transcend our reality, part of the invisible creation, things that are immensely powerful, um, immensely wise, smart, and capable of being present in all sorts of ways that are hard for us to conceive, but which also have very specific limits on, their, on all of these things, which God himself sets. And by the way, they are, again, personal, not impersonal. That is, they interact, they, uh, they have desires, they have plans, they have purposes, and they seek to carry them out. We'll, uh, we'll start, we'll probably close it up there since we're pretty well close to time. And next time we'll, uh, we'll start with something we already kind of talked about a lot. About, uh, well, what do angels look like? You can probably guess where our first answer will be. They don't technically look like anything because they don't have physical forms. But, they all, but our common depictions that you see in pictures and paintings, there's reasons we often depict them as people in white robes, with wings, with halos, so on and so forth. We'll uh, come to that next time, but let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.